Well, welcome back to the Huntback Country podcast in day two of Elk Week. So all week this week, we're releasing episodes Monday through Friday all about elk hunting and answering your questions with different experts or very accomplished elk hunters, I would say, because I know some of these guys are uncomfortable with that word expert. But anyway, today the topic is how to hunt quiet elk. So whether it's elk or quiet because it's early in the season, maybe it's really hot, really dry, maybe it's full moon, maybe it's pressure from predators, it could be all kinds of things, but how do you adapt strategies when elk are quiet? Steve, I know you face this a little bit, not only because of conditions, but even there in Idaho with hunting areas that have been more and more pressured by wolves. So we'll dive deep clearly into this topic, but what is forethought in your mind for hunting quiet elk? Yeah, I mean, definitely calling becomes really tough. And if you're relying on calling as your only strategy and, and by calling, I mean more so, um, like just the, the hit a ridgeline and cover as much country and, and throw out location bugles every hundred yards. Um, yeah, that, that works great. And, and it, it even, you don't necessarily have to change if there's plenty of elk cause you cover enough country. Eventually you're going to find an elk, but you're probably going to walk by a lot or have some really, really slow days. Um, so to me, that's where having intimate knowledge of the country really, really helps to be able to know where elk like to live, to know their bedding and feeding grounds. Um, and I, to me, probably, I mean, there's plenty of tactics, right. Of sitting over water, um, sitting on a tree stand over tra- well-traveled trails. You know, I think guys find lots of ways to get it done for me. I just do set up. So I will get in really quietly into um, what I you know believe to be elky country or say it's 11 a.m. and I know there's a good little bench around the corner with some beds and tall grass and a wallow. Um, I'm going to sneak in, get within 100, 150 yards in order the terrain dictates and set up and call. And I'll just do these 45-minute calling sessions where uh, I think Paul Medell talks about this a little bit. I'm just sit there and call for half an hour and, and and just do some cow calls, break some sticks, do some kind of light bugles, um, and just wait and, and have, you know, you could do this solo or with a partner, uh, just wait. And that's probably going to be my strategy. And just, even if you never hear anything, stay on alert the entire time. Don't start, you know, eating snacks and, and not paying attention because we've had plenty of elk come in, especially, uh, at least for me in wolf country, because they're it's a very good chance there's a bull right there, um, but they just don't tend to talk as much as they used to, um, and and they're just going to come in silent. And your only indicator may be a, a twig snap that you're not sure exactly, like you barely hear it, and then all of a sudden, 30 seconds later, a bull's standing there looking at you. So they can be crazy quiet when they want to be. Um, yeah. yeah, that'd be my top strategy for sure. Right. Yeah, I think something that's tough to deal with for me personally is when when things are quiet, does that mean elk aren't there or does that mean elk are there, but elk are being quiet because of yeah. some factors such as predators? So, you know, interpret the sign. Look at that. Are you in a place where you're seeing some level of elk sign and just not hearing elk? Are you in a place where you're not hearing elk and you're seeing a lot of wolf sign? Like, you know, so also use your eyes and pay attention. Um, but yeah, that point, Steve, on doing call calling sequences is great because those elk might be there, they might be quiet, they might then come into you quiet. So all kinds of uh, things to learn on this topic. As with last episode, we'll kick things off with Dan Staten talking about how he adapts to hunt when the conditions are quiet.
when the elk aren't being too talkative, then a lot of times where I elk hunt in like say Idaho or other timbered areas like Montana, if they're not talking, my odds go way down. And so that's when I hope I'm in more open country where I can get eyes on the elk and slip in while they're bedded or get in real close to where they're going to start getting up and milling around and get a shot in the evening. I will sit water or a wallow. I will do some blind cold calling in areas with the sign I mentioned previously on our last last episode where I talked about, you know, droppings that are green, fresh pea scrapes and rubs and tracks and the elk are just they're here somewhere. I will get set up and do 20 30 minute cold calling areas and 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 expect a bull to sneak in quietly. And that's not the sexiest way to elk hunt in my opinion, but it's also a very productive when it's not productive. And so you just have to be doing something. I don't think you should be taking a nap, taking your boots off and chilling out unless you're doing some of the late night elk locating and you need to get a nap in and that's fine. That's justified. But other than that, you should be trying something um, to get the elk to come in quiet if they're not going to play ball. And, and that's really what I do when I have elk that are quiet is I, I just I have to adapt to the areas that I'm in. For example, I've hunted a lot of states for elk. I would say in New Mexico, chances are I'm going to be able to glass up elk or get into some of those little pockets of bedding areas where these are where the cedars or junipers are. They're going to be in here. I'm going to get above them because it's midday and the wind's blowing up, and I'm going to do my blind calling there. Same with Arizona. There's a lot of areas to glass, but there is dense pockets of juniper and pinion or cedars. Um, when you go to Colorado and you're in the high country, these elk aren't going to probably bed above timberline. They're going to get in the timber so you can get – at timberline and kind of parallel the timber and do your your setups all throughout there. Uh, when you're over in Wyoming, Wyoming's got it all. It's got high peaks. It's got desert valleys. It's got sagebrush. Depends on where you're at, but they're still a really conducive to glassing and figuring out where the most probable areas are for the elk to bed. When you're hunting eastern Montana, same thing. Very open, glass friendly. But when you go to western Montana or you go to anywhere. In northern Idaho, uh, it's going to be a timber game. You're going to have to find sign and then do your blind calling there. Optics aren't going to help you. You know, southern Idaho, it's got desert. It's got big valleys and sagebrush and big mountains glassing. And so you just have to kind of adapt to where you're at. So Oregon, Roosevelt's, you ain't glassing. You got to find sign. It's going to be dense. Eastern Oregon, you can use some glass. So I'm trying to cover all the states here, but – Basically, you have to figure out what's going on with your terrain and how can you hunt it the best. They're not talking, you know, put yourself in a position to where you can interact with some elk, even if it means them coming in quietly. My theory is that somewhere in the mountains, in the unit that I'm in, there's a hot cow. It's just odds are they're, they're somewhere. And so maybe I have found elk, but there's no hot cows. So okay, put them on ice and go find the elk that do. Now, logistically, if you're backpack hunting, you're kind of screwed. And that's why I think a lot of times backcountry elk hunting is overrated because mobility is important. And for me, I really want to hunt elk that are hot. And I've heard elk full-on rut bugle fest 
August 23rd in Nevada in 2007 or 8, I woke up to a a herd bull, 7 by 7 and he had 30 or 40 cows, and I was in the backcountry bivy hunting, sleeping on the side of a mountain that if you rolled too much, you'd be rolling down the mountain. And I woke up to this bull just chasing off satellites and scent checking every cow and bugling his brains out. August 23rd, uh, last year in Nevada, light switch came on. September 1, I had a bugle fest of like four bulls over 350 trying to split up a herd of 100 cows. And it was incredible. And then I've bugled in herd bulls in Idaho on the opener September 1st, September 6th. Um, Even August 30th, I've bugled in bulls that already have cows. And then you got these bachelor group of elk September 4th. It's Labor Day. Everybody's hunting. I've been out there and I've had got in on bulls and they're all like hanging out together with no cows. And you're like, what? So somewhere in the mountain, there's a cow that's squirting early. That's a terrible term, but it makes sense. And so that is where you want to be. And if you're not mobile, you're not going to be there. And so I love the idea of strapping on an XO and going deep, but you are limiting yourself to Biggie's elk. And so let's talk about that scenario. Uh, Elk nuts got the most thorough approach, in my opinion, to slow playing elk. His term for slow play is different than others, but bottom line is when you got a bull, he's got cows, and none of them are hot, he's probably not going to talk very much or at all. But I think you can get him to at least answer you if you get set up in the right area and let out just like a squeaky little locator bugle. He's going to give you a grunt or a half bugle or just a... And that's all you need to run the elk nut slow play. And if you've never heard his rendition, he's got audiobooks and he's got an app. And I'm giving him a plug because I just love his enthusiasm for elk hunting. And he's so passionate that he believes everything he's saying to be gospel. And there's other guys like Chris Rowe, um, Steve Chappelle, um, Jay Scott, all these guys who have so much elk hunting. They all have little different theories, but the elk have never changed. The bottom line is they have specifically these bulls that are quiet. They have a desire or a natural urge to breed, and you have to take advantage of that. And so what you do on this slow play, this is the Cliff Notes version. I'm sure Paul will go into thorough detail. And if he doesn't, get his app, look into it. But just you're going to get in as tight as you can. You're going to turn your back to the bull and create a scenario where there is a hot cow and you are a younger bull and you are just focusing on making the sounds of an excited bull, whether it be heavy breathing, grunts, some soft cow calls, and you're going to maybe lead that into some raking and more grunts and maybe even oh, some glunking and then maybe uh, an estrus, if you will, a little bit of a more whiny cow call. And then you're going to lead into maybe a half bugle or a herd gathering bugle, a half one. And you're not going to do a full-on challenge bugle. You're just going to slow play and build it up. could take five minutes, could take 50 minutes. And eventually you're going to get to where you're going to do what Paul calls the estrus buzz or what I would say like a herd gathering uh, cow call. And look that up on the internet. You'll find it. And you make that sound you should get that bull to full-on bugle, and when he does, you almost want to bugle on top of him, cut him off, a challenge, 
rake a tree and create this urgency that, dude, there is a cow right here and she's ready and he's going to be telling her to come to him and you are going to be her telling you him to come to her, if that makes sense. And meanwhile, you're going to be this lesser bull, if you will, that's like, no, she's with me. And you're just trying to create competition and you're trying to maximize his urge to breed. That's a really cool system that I'm excited to try quite a bit because I undoubtedly always find herd bulls that don't have hot cows and they don't want to play ball. And there's nothing better than that interaction of bugling a bull and, and bringing them into you versus that. And now we hear from Corey Jacobson. I think for me, the, you know, my, my style of hunting is definitely using the calls. And if I want to use calls to call in an elk, I really need a vocal elk. And I think we've seen, especially in the last 10 years, definitely a shift in, in that landscape that elk are less vocal and just getting a response out of an elk, an initial response can be more difficult than, you know, really there's, I wrote an article several, a couple of years ago about, you know, what causes quiet elk. And when you think about it, elk are a vocal animal and they want to communicate vocally. And so if they aren't, there's a reason for that. And I think understanding the reason is, is so vital to implementing a solution because, you know, there's, there's times that you just can't get a bugle out of an elk, but there are other times that an elk is really quiet. And there are some things that you can do if you understand why they're quiet to, uh, to get them to talk. And I really think that if you can get an elk to talk, you can call that elk in, even if he's super shy, even if he's super quiet. Uh, if he responds to you, that means he's he's at least willing to engage in conversation. And from that point, uh, you can kind of control that conversation to to bring him in. But so understanding why elk are quiet, you know, there's there's really uh, th- there's a lot of things. But I think you can boil it down to probably two or three things. Uh, number one's hunting pressure, and we just see that public land, over-the-counter, general-type hunts, there's increased hunting pressure, and that does affect the elk to some degree. Uh, Expecting to call in an elk 400 yards off of a main road in a very heavily hunted area at the end of elk season is a pretty lofty expectation. So understanding that hunting pressure affects uh, elk vocalization and, you know, maybe having to go deeper, maybe having to find areas to get away from hunting pressure and you hear people talk in places, especially like Colorado, that does get a lot of hunting pressure that it's impossible to get away from it. And I don't think it's ever impossible to get away from it. It's difficult for sure. But there's, I think there's always an area you can go where you're going to get away from pressure. And when you think about it, that's what the elk are doing. If they get pressure, they're finding those pockets where they can go to and escape pressure. They aren't just going to live with pressure and say, you know, that's the way it is. I just won't talk for a month. They're going to, they're going to try to get away from that pressure. So understanding if it's hunting pressure and then figuring out a way to, to get away from that hunting pressure, uh, is important. Uh, you know, people say sometimes the elk won't talk when there's heavy hunting pressure. And I think that it definitely limits the talking, but I also think that if you get in and, and say the right thing at the right time, you can even get a heavily pressured elk to to not only talk but to come to the calls 
Another thing that we see a lot of times during archery season is hot weather. You know, well, any weather, but especially hot, dry weather. It just really mutes the the rut a little bit. And you look at especially the desert states like Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, some of those states. The actual the rut will actually be muted due to drought, and they'll still rut. the The bulls will still breed cows. They'll still have calves the next spring, but it won't be a drawn out rut where they're just running around screaming their heads off. Uh, it'll definitely affect the the intensity of the rut, I guess. And so, understanding that uh, moon phases, you know, if the elk are out all night feeding and they're they're vocal during a full moon during the night hours, they're probably going to be a little bit more quiet during the day. So understanding those effects is is important. And I think the last one, kind of the, the hot button topic of elk vocalization is predators. And we've seen it with wolves, especially the last you know 10 or 15 years. And there's no doubt wolves have caused elk to become less vocal. And when an elk bugles, and a pack of wolves show up, they, they quickly put two and two together and know that, hey, my bugle is a dinner bell and it keeps bringing, you know, all the wolves into into our bedding area. And so they quit bugling because of that. And, you know, elk will still bugle, but you're going to have to be in a lot closer to them to get them to answer a location bugle. Uh, they aren't going to be screaming their heads off all day, just bugle after bugle. It's going to be a quieter bugle. It's going to be uh, much less frequent. Still can have the exact same outcome as far as calling an elk you can still challenge elk you can still elicit that emotional response out of an elk but it's uh, it's not going to be near like it was 20 years ago when six bulls would answer you from a mile away and they would continue bugling on their own as you walked into them they're they're definitely going to be uh, less frequent and and less intense in the bugling so just understanding that that if you start getting into elk sign and aren't getting a response you know, my style of blowing right by them and finding the elk that is bugling sometimes has to be compromised a little bit. And I do have to slow down and realize I'm probably going to have to get close to this elk. Uh, there might be a couple tactics I need to employ just to get an initial response out of the elk. Yeah. What are the, some, some of the ways you adapt? Because you, I mean, you're a good example, Corey, of you hunt multiple states a year in a given year. And let's say you have five, six, seven days in a state and the the conditions just aren't favorable. I mean, I'm thinking from personal experience of the seven days I had in Colorado last year were super, super hot and super dry and things are really quiet. So like, what's an example of the way that you adapt um, to those conditions when elk are quiet? For sure. So when it comes to pressure, you know, I think getting away from the pressure is, is the key. And that usually involves just hiking harder and hiking farther. And, and I fully understand there are times when you can hike 12 miles into an area and hike as hard and as far as you want to, and you're still going to bump into people. Uh, but I also fully uh, think that there are areas within that same unit where you can get away from people. And so I just, I try to identify those places that are just more remote, nastier to get into, you know, maybe a thicker, brushier, steeper North face. Uh, it's not going to be that ideal trail system on a ridge line that's going to going to do it i have to kind of go off grid a little bit and find those areas so when it comes to hunting pressured elk you've got to find areas that are less pressured and that might mean not going back to the same place next year and doing some research to uh, find a completely different unit or maybe even a completely different state and i just i hear too many stories of people that go to and i use colorado as an example because 
it is heavily hunted and there's a lot of pressure there, but I guarantee there are lots of great areas in Colorado that don't get that kind of pressure. And uh, I just hear people say, I spent eight days in an area. I hunted it hard. I didn't see a track. I didn't hear a bugle. All I saw was people. Well, if you stayed there all eight days, that's, you know, it's no longer the people that are to blame. It's you because <laughs> there, there are other areas you could have packed up and went to. And yes, it's not convenient and it stinks to pack up camp in the middle of a hunt. And there's a lot of unknown, but some of the best hunting areas I've found have been areas I've stumbled into when I had to just pull up from an area I knew and, and go to someplace new. So getting away from people, when it comes to hot weather, you can't change the weather. You can't change the moon. You can't change any of that. So I, you just have to, you know, I, I think for me, we hunted New Mexico a few years back. Uh, it was the prime time. It was, we were there during the peak of the rut during the fall equinox, but the full moon also hit then. There was uh, incredibly hot weather. It was up into the 80s every day and there were people everywhere. And so we really had the worst conditions to try to hunt in. And finally, on the last two days, I had to be convinced to go and spot and stock elk. And that's how we ended up killing the elk was spotting and stocking, which goes completely against every ounce of intention in my body and every <laughs> desire I have to hunt elk. I, I don't. If I wanted to spot and stock, I'd hunt mule deer, you know, and elk I, I like to hunt because they call. But uh, after seven days, we'd only called in like two elk, so we just had to had to change tactics and I think spawning and stalking, if the train allows for it, is a great method for finding elk when it's hot and dry. They have to go to water, so maybe sitting on water, if you if you can muster the patience to sit there all day, it can be effective. And so I think weather-wise, it really comes down to probably changing tactics more so than adjusting a tactic. And then wolves, you know, it's it's really uh, understanding that wolves are a very dynamic mobile hunter. So they're continually on the move, and that keeps the elk continually on the move. They aren't staying in a basin necessarily like they used to for the entire rut. They're traveling three or four miles into another basin to get away from the wolves, and maybe they'll come back in four or five days. So just being more you know, more dynamic, I guess, in our approach that we have to cover a lot more country. We have to find the elk at the time that they're not being like literally pressured and hunted by the, by the wolves and uh, just staying very mobile to to do that and then also understanding they're not going to be as vocal so we're going to have to get in a little closer to them and put a little more pressure on the elk to get a response out of them next up we have trent fisher I, I mentioned this a little bit in the last segment it's uh you're either around elk or you're not and it's uh in the how to hunt elk category it's it's tough because especially for us like we're out there all season long so we're out there from like this year we're leaving august 24th and starting to hunt and we're going to finish probably the end of september you know the first of october somewhere so there's a big stint of time in there where that rut the elk rut it's not always going to be at its peak you know you're not always just going to be on screaming bulls all the time but it's you, you when you've when you've hunted elk for even it doesn't take too long to realize you either around elk or you're not. And what I mean by that is you're seeing sign and you're smelling them a lot and you're in their bedding areas and you're traveling through, you know, their travel routes and stuff. So you will be around elk and you, you, you will know when you're around elk. And um, so 
what my biggest thing is like say early season say um you're you're the, the, they're not cranked up they're not just screaming out of their beds they're not doing any of that and and the, my biggest thing is to slow down slow down and don't don't be just rummaging through the woods like we normally do blowing bugles and just taking off slow down look at the sign actually go back to your the way you know the way your dad taught you or whoever mentored you taught you and look at the ground have there been is that a fresh elk track is that not how close am i to elk can i smell them where am i at as far as a bedding area is there a bench around that they would normally lay on that if they could be at right now and they're not talking you know so slow down look at all the all the things around you look at the rubs how fresh are the rubs um all that stuff uh last uh, last year in colorado we found this exact same thing. The bulls were just, they were just not talking and we would, we would just kind of be in our same sequence, you know, run and bugle, run and bugle kind of thing. And so I would, we would go bugle and nope, nothing here. And so, you know, we do go kind of through a sequence of a few different bugles, cow calls and everything, just a quick setup. And then right as we'd start to take off, right as we'd start to, you know, keep on moving, we'd look up and there'd be a bull walking towards us and it would blow out and we did this like three times in one day and they never bugled they never said a word but they were definitely coming in so that was a scenario that i would definitely look into just slowing down and and not and have a good setup have that collar back quite a ways more than the um than the shooter so the shooter can can get eyes on the animal before he sees the collar moving around or raking or doing whatever you know when you're calling in your in your sequence so yeah so i just i just say change it up just a little bit it's not always easy when it's out of your element when it's not you know the normal bull bugles five times screams rips up a tree comes in you know peeing on himself that's like the that's like what it's on TV, right? It doesn't always happen that way at all. So sometimes you got to switch up your tactics a little bit. Yeah. Do your calls change? Does how you call change when you feel like, yeah, bulls are here, but they're not fired up. Maybe they're coming in quiet. Does that affect the way that you call? Not too much. Not too much. Sometimes I'll lean on a cow call a little bit more. Sometimes, you know, be a little softer, kind of be instead of just so aggressive, you know, just kind of more of a wandering looking around calls and stuff like that. But um, usually we don't differ too awful much from um, our calling techniques and stuff like that. We kind of still have a playbook on on how we call and because all we're looking for is that one one bull to bugle. So when, when the elk do shut up like that, it's not really in our wheelhouse. That's why we didn't do very well at it last year when they were like that for those few days. But, um, but after, you know, we did get our opportunities in the, in those times. And so it's, uh, it's adapting to, to what the elk are doing. Kind of. Yeah. You mentioned the, the setups are important when, especially if you have a couple guys, which you guys typically always do, but having the caller, having the shooter, having the shooter set up, be ready in case something's coming in quiet. Can you just touch on some of the things that guys need to consider for that situation of where might that elk come from? How should that shooter be set up in relation to the caller? Just some of the things that you guys have learned over the years with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, every single, every single instance is totally different. And, um, the setup, we get a lot of questions about that. And the, and the setup 
is is super key and then on the other hand is not sometimes you just need to get set up and there's a lot of guys that i've hunted with there you're always looking for that perfect spot right with those perfect shooting lanes with everything i can shoot this way i can shoot that way uh and a lot of times that is never the case so getting staying mobile and just having an open mind as far as when when, when he set up i like to I like to get when I'm the shooter, I like to get in front of something, uh, whether it be a small tree or something, something to break up my outlined image. And then I also like to stand in the shady spot. I don't like to stand like right in a sun spot uh, where I'm just because everything, whether it be just a screw on your bow or whether it be your face, if you don't have face paint or whatever, you kind of have this glow or the sheen on you and um anyway so a shadow is definitely key to try to look for in a quick setup and and some setups can be so so fast that you don't have any time to do anything it's right on top of you and you're just getting the best spot that you can find but um, if you have time kind of methodically think it out methodically think out. okay there's a trail here if is he going to come on face is he going to be face on is um is he gonna he's gonna maybe try to circle me for the wind obviously a bigger mature bull usually does that so what does that look like if he kind of hooks around me is he going to go right through that brush and i'm not going to have anything so look for those kind of scenarios and key off the wind everything is wind Everything that you do in elk hunting or hunting in general is win. And so definitely key off of all those things. And here is Paul the Elk Nut Medell. Yeah, I just, I really don't give up on the bugle. <clears throat> you know, it, <laughs> I really don't. I don't care if it's August the 30th. I just don't give up on it. It, it, it has paid off just time and time and time again to find those elk. And I, I understand what you're saying. There can be three or four days go by when it's like pulling teeth out there. And, and, and there are other strategies, especially if I'm familiar with an area and I know elk could be over here or over here, or over here. I, I would definitely go into more of some sort of a sequence and, and try to attract them because when the elk are quiet like that, what does it tell you? It's telling you that there's no cows in heat. There's nothing in estrus. All these bulls out there are still out there, but they're not feeling aggressive. Not at all. But can you still call those bulls in or get them excited or have them come to you? And that's my strategy. Anytime I can get the elk come to me, my odds just go through the roof of, for success. But when it's me sneaking in, hoping that something's in there and 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 i don't know where they're at they're not saying anything like you said then it's a real crapshoot for them for me to spot them before they spot me because i don't even know where they're at if they're there at all and 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 so i'm bouncing around so instead of me doing like that i'm going to go through a sequence if it's early season i know the 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 satellites are uh, still hanging together Without question, let's just say we're talking the last week of August. That's usually your most of your quiet times. Last week of August, first four or five days of September. I'm going to draw them out. I'm going to try to suck them over to me, especially if I really feel they're there because I can see the sign. I can see fresh sign. I know I'm not very far from a bedding area. I haven't seen anything. I haven't heard anything. But I know they should be somewhere around here because I, you can just see it. You can see the country. And you can go, oh, they can be bedded right up in here. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. But you're looking at the sign. They're somewhere in the vicinity. So what I'll do is I'll set up. And instead of going through, you know, just a normal blind or cold calling sequence, I don't like doing that. 
because you're usually going to attract cows or spikes. Now, if you're if you're the hunter out there that just wants to shoot something, then a cold calling or blind calling sequence can be really good. But I'm trying to target bulls. And so my my calling is tailored for them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get over there and I'm going to start raking in the area. I'm just going to start raking and raking, thrashing around, cracking, breaking things. And then I may give a few sounds. You know, I may even throw out a sharp bugle. But I'm going to give a lot of weird little sounds that a bull will do as he's just feeling his oats and he's right there in their area. And, and, and a lot of times – let me give you an example of what some of these sounds are when I'm doing it because they're not – they're not your normal. Here, you know, here's a bugle. And this is what, you know, a lot of people will do. They'll get up there, maybe do a little this and that, and they'll bugle, nothing happens, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and it goes like that for days, and they're not getting anything. They're waiting around two or three, four minutes, and so they move off because the elk aren't saying anything. But if I think they're right in there, I really have that gut feeling from so many years of experience. I will, I, I will get more creative with my calling. And along with the raking, I'll just start making a bunch of little normal sounds like, like a bull would do. Uh, if he, Like I say, he's just feeling his oats. He's feeling the, the, the pressures of the rut starting to come on. And he's just getting that friskiness to him. And he's kind of going... And that, you know, you'll hear him do things like that. And then you'll just kind of hear him make little... And you hear these little lazy bugles they'll give. And so then I'll throw my reed in. And I will make sounds like that for, I mean, five or six minutes and wind it up wind, and moan and yearn and rake and just and play with it. Because you will be shocked how that attracts bulls. It just does. They, next thing you know, you don't see cows coming in. But all of a sudden, you can hear things popping. Maybe an antler hitting a branch. And they're starting to come your way just a little bit. And if I don't start hearing that within 10, 12 minutes, some more 10 to 15 minutes, what I do, I like to now bring out antlers. And, 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 and I'll just start clashing them. And like another bull moved over there. And heard him and came in. And now they're just kind of clinking around. They're sparring to pushing. And I'm making all these little noises as I'm, as, as I'm kicking my feet on the ground and breaking things. And just like they're pushing each other around. Kind of, you know, and I may turn this way and do it the other way. And just... And and I go through all these kind of sounds. That's Lenny. He'll tell you. I mean, I really will pour it out there. I had him come back one time. He goes, "Was that you doing all that? I thought it all came in behind you." And I said, "No. I mean, you know, those are the things that you make it so real. There's so much more than just making a few cow sounds and a couple little bugles. But when you start crashing the antlers and clanking them and then kicking it around, like I say, it's like another bull came in, and all of a sudden these other elk that are out there, these bulls or whatnot that you know is in the vicinity, they just start making their way over to you. They want to see the skirmish. They want to know who you are." And so when nothing's happening, you can't go wrong by doing things like that because the elk, those bulls are not interested in a cow. They could care less about a cow right now. 
That's just their frame of mind. And so by going through a bunch of cow calling and a few little bugles and blah, 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 like I say, you're really going to pull in those cows and spikes, but no, hardly no branch antler bulls. But go into the bull sounds and just make it real as you can. And the next thing you know, here they come. I've called as many as seven bulls in at one time. All seven of them came in. And they were all just satellite bulls. But they all came in. Breaking, cracking through the timber. They never made a peep. I never heard them make a bugle. They didn't do anything. They just showed up. But at the same time, you know, I've called a bunch of ones, twos, and threes in. But it, it, it is so exciting to watch it happen when you start crashing the antlers and clanking and making it so real out there that they just have to come and see what the heck is going on. So that's one of the things that I like doing. And I'll throw out some bugles and chuckles. I'll do all, you know, that too, but I don't go overboard with it. I like making all those little moans and groans and the yearning. And, and I like doing that more because it's much more realistic. And, and, and it just seems to be extremely effective in That's doing awesome. it. There's no obviously hard and fast answer to this, but if you're making those <laughs> types of vocalizations and you're in a timbered area, especially, which it sounds like you are the vast majority of the time, like, what type of radius do you think an elk would need to be in to hear those? So this isn't like a giant yeah. screaming locator. I'm talking about those vocalizations, that sequence you just talked about. I mean, do you think it's like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, you can <laughs> call in an elk with that type of sequence from what type of distance in the timber? What would be, like, your guess? Between a half a mile and three quarters of a mile away. Okay. Yeah. That far, and of course, if I'm in some big bowl in a pocket, and the mountains are 1,500 feet above me, then obviously it won't carry up over that. Sure. But I'm doing it in areas where usually my sound is ranging out, but it, it's nothing to call them in from two and three hundred yards. I mean, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact, most of my setups these days, no matter what I'm going through, I'm usually with a couple hundred yards from the bowl because it's so ugly over there. It's just so much downfall and so much noisy stuff that instead of me walking up in there to them, I usually will pull them out. And I mean, I mean, these are mostly all herd bulls and it just sucks them right out of there. And here they come at you. But by making it real, and I'll tell you another thing I think is a very interesting point when I'm going through these sounds and, and I'm creating this illusion and this excitement at the same time, I notice I have noticed over the years that it is an absolutely rare occurrence that a bull tries to come in downwind. He comes straight at me almost every single time. He never tries to catch the wind on you. And so I have another sequence or two that they do the same thing on. It depends on you know the situation. But they're not trying to slip around you. And, and, and I think that's a real uh, interesting point, if, even if it was 50-50, but it's not. I'd say over 95% of them come right at me on a string. So it, it, it's a really good thing to, to look forward to and to understand. If you do, do these sequences, realize the majority of them are going to come right at you. So that's where you want to focus your attention, kind of in a little fan thing, your little left, little right, up, up the gut, and, you know, as long as you don't have some huge obstruction in their way. But, but anyway, I, it's a, that's a very interesting point right there. Well, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so you receive future episodes, including tomorrow, as we talk about how to close the distance on elk. So you hear a bull, you maybe kind of know where he's at, but you're not sure how to get within bow range. How do you close the distance? That's the topic for tomorrow's episode. Hope you're enjoying Elk Week. As always, you can contact us directly by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com.